0: All right, if you, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6 today. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, go down to verse 10 as we continue to look at what we, we looked at a, a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, last week, really, the, the power of the Word of God. How in our spiritual battles, the sword of the Lord, uh, the Word of God is a powerful weapon Uh, A powerful tool for us, and we were encouraged last week why we need to take it up. Uh, Let's continue that now. Let's end the honor of of reading the word of our God. Let's uh, start in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, as we see the words that we have just asked that we would not forget. Finally, be strong in the Lord. which is the word of God. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right, you may be seated. So just a reminder from, from last time about what, how, how do we see the Bible describing itself as a really powerful weapon for spiritual warfare, that if, if you're going to handle spiritual warfare well, You need to know the Bible well because that's part of its intended purpose is to equip us and to be a piece of equipment In our spiritual battle, so we saw how it is meant to equip us. uh, First, last time, we saw the Bible provides powerful intel. So the Bible equips us; it lets us know what the enemy is doing, and it lets us know what our mission is supposed to be. So it tells us this is how the enemy attacks; it's how he's always attacked. So there's never any reason when it comes to spiritual attack or spiritual warfare that we should be surprised by anything, because every temptation that comes our way is such that is common to man and such as has been described in the scriptures. So we should be ready. Ready for any attack, because we have the Word of God to prepare us. But not only that, we have intel for telling us what we should be doing, uh, what our actions should be. So it's not just telling us what the enemy is going to do, but it describes us what we should do. So the Word of God equips us in that way. It gives us intel, but it doesn't just equip us. We saw it as also equipment itself. It is to be used, not just used in order just to know these things, but used against Uh, the enemy in his spiritual attacks. So we saw last time that the Bible is a powerful defensive weapon in spiritual warfare. Uh, That when you're facing spiritual warfare, uh, you need to respond to spiritual warfare with, it is written, right? Uh, You need to respond to temptation with the word of God. And the living word gave you that example by himself responding to temptation with the words every time it is written, it is written, it is written. And so we encouraged you last week, if you want to handle the attacks of the enemy well, you need to know the Word of God, you also need to use the Word of God. You need to use the Word of God when the enemy attacks you. It's not just knowing the Word, it's using the Word. It's responding to spiritual temptation and attack, not by listening to the lies of the evil one, but by responding back with, it is written. So every time you face a spiritual struggle, respond to that. Every time you're in the middle of spiritual warfare, answer that with, It is written, and I encourage you, even do it audibly, Uh, even do it audibly, Uh, well, because one, that's what Christ did, Uh, but it can be a helpful thing to do that. But the Bible is not just uh, a defensive weapon. Today we're going to see that the Bible is a powerful offensive weapon. The Bible is a powerful offensive weapon. So last week we were in Proverbs, and Proverbs told us that the, the wisdom of God, the Word that comes from His mouth, that His Word delivers us from the evil ones and from the evil one. So we saw that last week. It, the, the Word of God delivers us. So you use the Word and it delivers you from the attack of the enemy. But this week we're going to see that God's wisdom doesn't just deliver us, that God's wisdom crushes our enemy, okay? That God's wisdom and God's word is to be wielded by us to crush our enemies. So let me, give you, let me give you an example. Turn to Romans chapter 16. Let's read a passage here that's going to be an example of this taking place. Romans chapter 16, uh, down verses 17 through 20. It says, "'I appeal to you, brothers, "'to watch out for those who cause divisions "'and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine "'that you've been taught.'" The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in Romans 16 here, Paul is ending this, this great letter to the Romans with, with a warning uh, about uh, these this upcoming battle that they're going to face. But an upcoming battle that he is certain that they will win, or, or rather that God will, through them, win soon enough. Uh, there are going to come those, he says, who are going to come and try and cause divisions in their church. They're going to put up stumbling blocks, uh, to people, uh, and Paul tells them, avoid them. Now, either uh, either avoid the people or avoid the stumbling blocks or both, which is probably the point. These people are going to bring stumbling blocks, avoid them. Which one? He goes, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, avoid both of them. Avoid the people and avoid the stumbling blocks. Uh, and he says, so you avoid them. And he, he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because the God of Peace, the God of peace, not the God of division and of stumbling, but the God of peace. So these people are going to bring division, stumbling, chaos in the church. The God who doesn't bring those things, but who instead brings peace within the body of Christ is soon going to crush Satan under their own feet. But look at at how the word of God is going to be essential in this. It is the Word of God who is going to identify these people. So we're talking about this troublemaker. How are they going to know who these people are? The Word of God identify These troublemakers are saying and doing things contrary, he says, to the teachings that you've learned. The Word of God that he says they were obeying. But it's also the Word of God which is here teaching them to avoid these people that they will be used to crush them as well. So, so you have in, the, in this one passage, you have both the defensive use of the Word of God. It shows us who and what to avoid. It keeps us from falling prey. It's used to stop attacks from the enemy. The enemy's bringing this attack. What do you respond to it with? That is not from God's Word. You're teaching contrary to the Word of God. So there's the defensive aspect of it, but also look at the offensive nature of it. God uses the Word and our knowledge of it and our obedience to it, not just to survive the attack. Because what is going to be the outcome of this event, of these adversaries, of this work of Satan? What is God going to do? God is going to soon crush Satan under their feet. So in other words, you do this... And the enemy's not going to win in your church. This isn't just some sort of grand apocalyptic thing that God crushed Satan under the Roman church's feet back then or anything. This is saying, this is what God does. God crushes the plans and works of the enemy when we use his word. It doesn't just offend us. God uses his word to crush Satan under our feet. It's not just defensive. God's word is not just offensive, but, but offensive. And that's not the only place we see the offensive nature of God's word as a as a powerful weapon to be taken up in our spiritual warfare, to be wielded against the enemy, not just defensively but but offensively. Not to just the word of God is not there just to keep us from losing, but as a tool for our winning. Not just to stop defeat, but as in Romans, to claim victory. In the end, he doesn't say, "Hey, and don't worry, you're going to get through it." Woo. And Satan's going to go somewhere else. He's going to try something. He says, look, you do this, and in the end, you're going to crush Satan. Or I'm going to crush him under your feet. So that you and I can continue through our obedience to the Word and knowledge of the Word to see God crush Satan under our own feet. So we see the offensive nature of God's Word. And we we see it just even in what it is called. What, when we read in Ephesians 6, what is the Word of God called? A sword. In all of that armor, you see that that God's word is called the sword. Now, a sword can certainly be used defensively, used to, to parry or block the blows of the enemy, but the Bible describes the swordness of God's word not just to stop the attacks of the enemy, but to attack the enemy, to attack his works, to crush him. So let's talk about the Bible as a sword to deliver us from evil, not just by defending against the enemy, but by being used against the enemy ourselves. By us taking up the sword of the Lord and wielding it against the enemy. And the chief place we see this is in the passage we saw in Ephesians 6. So look at Ephesians six seventeen again. This is where we start to think of the Bible as a sword. If I were to tell you how do you know the Bible is a sword, we probably all think Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So here the Bible is called the sword of of the spirit. Now, I've heard people before say, hey, you know, uh, in this passage, you look at it and say, see, the Bible is the only offensive weapon in the list. And although I want to tell you that the Bible is the only offensive weapon, uh, or that the Bible is an offensive weapon, I'm, it's not the only offensive thing in this, its list. Because uh, although it's true that the, that the sword is an offensive weapon, you still wear armor when you go on the offensive right you still wear armor so as you're wielding the sword uh, and taking it against the enemy you don't so you don't go you don't stop an enemy's attack right uh, and then doff all your armor uh, the technical term, uh, and then charge at the enemy with that. Okay, is he done attacking? All right, take off your armor, guys, and then head on in. Uh, it's our turn to attack, and then they put on their armor and stop it. Even in war, whether attacking or defending, the armor still stays on. But here we do see, we do see uh, the the sword of the Lord, we are going to see the sword of the Lord used offensively. So I would say everything in that list is neither Offensive or defensive. In fact, everything in that list is both. Uh, so sometimes I hear people say, you know, the sword's the offensive weapon. Here. I think they're both. Uh, I think all of them are used both defensively and offensively in, in Scripture. So let's see, though, how when the, when the sword comes out, when the sword comes out, the Bible says the sword comes out not just to defend, like we saw last week, but when the sword of the Lord comes out, it is used to start lopping things off, Okay. That when the sword of God's word comes off, it starts hacking at the things of the enemy. It's not just defending against the enemy. It is taking it uh, to uh, the enemy. The first thing we're going to see is that the sword of the Lord is a powerful weapon used to cleanse God's own people from their defeats. Okay, So the sword of the Lord is a powerful weapon used against God's own people to cleanse their their defeats. So although, as God's people, we are going to win the war, it is not true, as I'm sure you can attest, that we are faithful in every battle. Uh, Although we are confident in the end we win this war and do not lose, that does not mean that every battle that we face we handle perfectly. Or well, or at the end of it you go, yeah, I think I won that. Uh, I think I did that exactly how I was supposed to do. In those instances where we fail in the battle, where we have not used the word defensively, where we have not said, I will not do that because it is written, but instead said, yeah, that does sound like a good idea, and we take and eat or whatever, the word of the Lord is used against his own people, but not for the purpose of defeating us but for the purpose of healing us. God's Word works like a surgeon's scalpel in His own people to excise the effects of our temporary defeats. Like the surgeon who's got to cut on the patient to stop infection, who's got to cleanse the wound before gangrene sets in. So God's Word is a powerful weapon to attack the kingdom of darkness in his own people to excise it from his own people. So the first thing I want to see how the word of the Lord is used powerfully is I want you to see how the word of the Lord is used powerfully in your own life to continue to scoop out and cut out any vestiges of the kingdom of darkness in your life and to prevent those that kingdom of darkness from coming and, and overtaking. Look at Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Now, we, we preached through the book of Hosea a, a few years ago. If you weren't here for that, let me encourage you. I love that book. One of my favorite books. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It's the very end of the book of Hosea. You can go and you can find them, listen to them if, uh, if, if you want, if you've got a few years that you're trying to figure out what to do with. Uh, look at Hosea 6, beginning in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. Torn us, why? That He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. So here we see, if you remember back, and I'm sure you remember the context of Hosea chapter 6, as soon as I mentioned it, you're like, oh, I remember those sermons. Uh, But if you remember, God's people have fallen into sin and God brings judgment on his people. He tears them, he strikes them down. But why does he do that? Why does he tear them? Why does he strike them down? He does those things, not because he hates them, but in order that he might, heal them. He has torn us so that he might heal us. He has struck us down so that he might bind us up. God has done those things. But notice, how did God do those things? What did God use to cut us? What did he use to strike us down? Look at verse 5. I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them By the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. It is the words of the prophet, the words of God's mouth that hews the people. The word hew is the word... For for cut, it just means it's the word for cut when you're cutting stone. In the Hebrew, it's just the word you use for cut when you're cutting stone. So if you see like stone cutters in in the Old Testament, you're reading about stone cutters, it's just going to be this word. It's the word for cut, but only the word for cut when you're cutting stone. That's what he's doing. He is cutting them. He is slaying his own people and cutting them with his word. It is only God's word that can cut through Israel's stone hard hearts that can cut out the stone. He slays his own people, but why does he do it? He slays them so that they might live. And God's own people, he uses his word offensively against them. His word is used offensively against us, against his own people in order to hew us, in order to cleave us that we might be alive. Look at at Isaiah 43, a beautiful picture of how God rescues his people with his own word, with his own word. Isaiah 43, 11 through 13, Isaiah 43, 11 through 13 says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work who can turn it back. What do you say? God says, it was, it was my word. It was my word that made you alive. Before me, there was no Savior. I declared and saved. I spoke. I proclaimed. When there was no strange God to talk to you, I was there. I spoke and made you my people. He declared, he saved, he proclaimed. It was his word that brought them to life. And it was his word, he says, that will make sure they stay alive. Nothing the enemy does will be able to stop him from rescuing his people. I am God. So I've done this. I am God. Henceforth, that's who I am. I am he. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work. Who can turn it back? I've done these things. I've done this work in you. And no one can turn it back. I've done it by my word in you. Nothing the enemy does can stop it. I have come and stolen you from the strange gods and from those that were not God. And I've made you my people when I proclaimed, when I declared, when I saved. It is His Word that does those things. Sometimes God's Word has to make war on His own people. And in that case, it works offensively against them, but ultimately to stop the work and effects of the evil one. When the enemy attacks God's people and wins a battle, when you and I fail at where we're supposed to win, when you and I forget to say it is written, and instead do what the enemy tells us to do, when we lose to the principalities and powers and the cosmic forces, and, and when we do that, when we lose those battles, God's word comes in. To excise the effects and to stop any gangrenous spread of the works of Satan in our lives. So, why is it that when you failed, you didn't keep failing and failing and failing and failing and failing like some horrible domino and then find yourself back in the kingdom of darkness? Why did that not happen? Because God will not let it happen. And what did He use to stop the spread of sin in your life? What did He use? What did He take up to slay any spread of darkness to come back into your hearts? He used his word. And he uses his word every time. Every time you fail in a battle, God will take up his sword on your behalf and cut any gangrenous root of sin from your life and it will hurt. He will slay you. He will cut you so that he can heal you, so that he can bind you up. He will hew you So that he might raise you up. But God's word is not a sword just wielded against, you know, the enemy's work in his own people. Although that's part of it. God uses his word. He sees the enemy attack. He sees his people fall. What does God do? He doesn't just say, oh, well, I was their God for a little bit. He says, I am still God. The enemy cannot stop my work. I have saved you. I've proclaimed. I've declared. The enemy's not going to stop that. He comes in. He uses his word to do those things. But God's word is also used to spread his glory to new peoples. So it doesn't just work, you know, he doesn't just use his word to attack the works of the enemy in his own people. God also uses his word to attack the work of the enemy in new peoples as well, to steal from the kingdom of darkness. So the sword of the Lord uh, next is not just a a powerful weapon uh, that is used to cleanse God's people from their defeats. The sword of the, the word is a powerful weapon to subdue the nations to subdue the lost, to subdue the evil ones of this world. Uh, God's word is powerful against the work of the evil one, both in us and in the world. God is not satisfied to use his word simply to destroy the works of the devil in his own people. His word is also used to destroy the works of the evil one he's going to say, in every square inch of his creation. So God's not just like, okay, these are my people, and the rest of creation, I'm kind of like, yeah. God's like, I will not allow any inch of creation to be dominated by the darkness. So what is he going to use to kill and slay the darkness? He uses his word. God's word is the sword that the Lord uses to kill, not to not to just slay his own children. God's word is the sword he uses to kill his enemies. But to make it even worse against the enemy, he kills his enemies, uses his word to kill his enemies so that he might make them alive. In us, God's word was used to powerfully stop any spread of the kingdom of darkness, any gangrenous inroads in our hearts. But the world isn't gangrenous, right? The world isn't dealing with an infection problem. The world is dead, right? The, 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 God doesn't need just to just excise part of what's wrong with the world, part of what's wrong with those who, who are not in Christ. He's got a, a little bit he needs to, to cut out. They are, they are dead to the things of God. The Word of God doesn't need to stop darkness from gaining ground. The darkness has all the ground. So in us, the Word worked like a sword to heal us. In the nations, we're going to see the Word works like a sword to kill. I mean, we needed healing. The nations need to be conquered. And it is the sword of God's Word that will bring their defeat and in that defeat, bring their salvation. Look at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. I mean, this is great. This is great that we're preaching this on Epiphany weekend, right? Uh, uh, already, I mean, Epiphany, the time where we're celebrating the, the, the coming of the light, the the, the the coming of the light to the nations. I mean, you got Magi coming in, you got all this stuff. Uh, so if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking about Epiphany, great time to talk about the light coming to the nations. And that's what the Word of God says said it would do, coming to, as we read this morning, uh, even the coastlands. Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 is one of those four servant songs that you've got in the book of Isaiah. Songs that are about the Messiah. Songs that are about the Christ of the one who's who's coming to redeem. And here He coming to redeem not just Israel, but coming to redeem the world. In fact, God says, look, it is too light of a thing for me to send my word just to wake up my own people. It is too light of a thing for me to send the Christ just to wake up Judah and just to wake up Israel, just to do what I talked about in Hosea. Too light of a thing. I'm going to use you as a light to the nations. And how is the servant going to do that? What does he say? He says, it is through the words of his mouth. He says, his words will be a sharp sword. This is verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He says, and he's going to be shot out like an arrow. And none of the if we've been reading through the book of Isaiah as one is prone to do. This is not surprising to us, right? It's not surprising that the Christ is going to do this because we already knew that the Christ was coming to slay people. We already knew that. Christ is coming to slay. That's what he's coming to do because we've read uh, Isaiah 11, right? We've, We've read Isaiah 11, even in preparations for the birth of the Messiah. But what does Isaiah 11 say? You go down to verse 4 and it says, And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So we read that in Isaiah. Let us not shocked that the, the sword of the Lord, uh, that the Lord is going to send his Messiah with a sword that will come out of his mouth and will start slaying people. But here we find out that the words of Christ, the words of this Messiah, are not meant just to preserve his people. That, he says, is actually too light of a thing. This word is going to be used as a light to the nations, to bring even them to salvation, so my salvation. Because it's like, he's going to slay them. And then he's like, then he's talking about, uh, yeah, I'm going to slay them. And I'm going to slay them with my word. What's the outcome going to be? That slaying will be a light to them. I will kill them so that they might live. I will slay them so that they might see. I will slay them so that they might be saved. Which is not an unusual metaphor for the Lord. He's already used that metaphor for God's own people. This is exactly what begins to happen. When the Messiah comes, this is what starts to happen. It starts to occur. What he said would occur. Hey, what do you know? This is taking place. Exactly what happens is the words of the servant, the words of Jesus, the words of the gospel, begin to spread through the world and start the work of ripping the nations from the hand of the evil one as Jesus comes to be the savior of the world. And so as that's happening, the apostles say, they go, hey, so you've got people, you've got thousands coming to faith And the apostles go, this isn't shocking. They know this isn't shocking. This is what God said would happen when his servant came. This is why his servant came. Now sometimes the Jews wanted to focus a little bit more on, can't we just focus on Judah and Israel, and who cares about being a light to the nations? But that's just because they hadn't been reading the word of God. We all know that anyway. They didn't want the Messiah to come at all. But here we see when his apostles start seeing the nations coming to Christ, they don't go, what in the world, pun, is happening? They know this is exactly what was supposed to happen. So what do they say? Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, what do they do? They quote from Isaiah. They quote from that passage we just read. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It is as if the churches were handing out lottery tickets, right? Uh, And the whole city is there to hear it, to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary for the word of God be spoken first to you. But as Isaiah says, but that is too light of a thing for it to be spoken just to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, and here's the quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word the word Of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So God's word did exactly what God said it was to. His word, spoken by the word, results in the nations bowing the knee to Christ. And it's been doing that work ever since. We are are a testament to how it did that. I mean, we are—we are, it, it didn't just stop with the nations just outside of Jerusalem or the nations just inside of Jerusalem. It continued. This picture of Jesus as the word of the Lord that slays the nations so that they might live is, is, is birthed in the Old Testament, but then continued throughout, throughout the New Testament in, in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is revealed several times as the one who has a sharp sword where? In his mouth. Which is not normally the place you want it. And you spend a lot of time as parents trying to get your kids to not put sharp stuff in their mouths. Um, but the Lord has a sharp sword in his mouth. This is why you don't let kids read the book of Revelation. Like, I just want to be like Jesus. Uh, like, get this out of your mouth. Uh, and, of course, when we see that the Lord has this sharp sword in his mouth, what do we think? Well, we start thinking of Isaiah 43, and we start thinking of Isaiah 49 because, like Ralph prayed, we have not forgotten the word, right? So we know, hey, I, I know that. The sword, the sword of the Lord's in his mouth. and We go, uh, some, it is, it, that has been spoken before. That, that comes from somewhere. This isn't just, this isn't just something that is, that, is, that is made up here. This isn't some new revelation of revelation. But what is the purpose of that sword that sits in the mouth of the Messiah? Revelation 19 tells us the purpose of the sword in the mouth of Christ. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So now we're adding Isaiah 11 as well. So, I mean, this thing is just, pa- I mean, of course, if you've, if I tell people don't read the book of revelation until you have the old Testament memorized, uh, but with a rod of iron, because every mistake I just want to go, you, let's just go back and read a lot of the old Testament. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath, of God the Almighty, on His robe and on His thigh, He has the name written: King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now this is, this is that I saw section of Revelation. We've got all these visions. You have, you know, James is going to love this. You have seven visions. Uh, you have seven visions here that run from this all the way through chapter twenty-one, each beginning with the words "I saw" and "I saw" and "I saw" and "I saw." These seven visions. It begins with this picture of this heavenly conqueror. You know, going for he's got he's got this holy army with him uh, who are also on white horses and and what are they going to do? They're going to smite the nations with the word of his mouth, with the sword of his mouth, and to rule over them with that rod of iron. And, and as it continues after. A, a series of wonderful victories that start in, in 1911 go over. I saw, I saw, I saw the series of, of, of victories. It, it concludes with this wonderful picture of new heavens and new earth uh, where there are no evil ones, right? Uh, no evil ones in it. Um, the, the work of the word, the work of that sword that began in chapter 19 is now complete. Now, again, this is not some new revelation of revelation. We've already seen this. We've seen this in Isaiah 43. We've seen this in Isaiah 49. We've seen this in Isaiah 11. Jesus is just doing what the Old Testament had already told us the Messiah was going to come and do. Just like when it happened in Acts and the nations start believing, the the apostles are going, you guys, we've read about this. Are you teachers of the law and you do not know this? We've read about this. He's talked about it multiple times. This is a fulfillment of the prophets, what, what would happen. I mean, we, when you read the prophets, this is what they say. Life is going to be like in the, in the last days. Those days are going to be great days but where the enemy is still thrashing around even as he's being defeated. But what will be the result of that work of the sword of the Lord? Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2, which are Micah chapter 4, 2 and Isaiah 2, 3, say, like same verses. What does it say there? and many nations shall come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord nations are going to come and say let's go to the mountain of the lord come let us go to the house of the god of jacob why because they want to make war on it they want to defeat cuz what does it say that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths why why is that going to happen He says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happens. So the sword of the word of God comes out. The nations are slain. Just like you start reading in Isaiah 11, you're going, he is going to slay the fire out of the nations. And then he builds up to Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 49. And you're he's going to slay them so that he might save them. And that's what we see happening. The nations are slain so that they might live. The nations are saying, let's go to Jerusalem that God may teach us. The nations are doing that. And they do that, he says, because the law has gone forth from Zion. And the denizens of Satan become the disciples of the Son. I mean, we know that we are commanded to disciple the nations. Why? Why? Is it because Jesus knows that in the end he's going to say, yeah, I told you to disciple the nations, but I knew that wouldn't really work. But it sounds really cool and I didn't want to be pessimistic before I left you. I wanted to leave you on a high note. Go and make disciples of the nations, but it's not going to work because they're going to get worse and worse and no one's going to want to listen to you anyway. No, because the word tells us to take his word and make disciples of the nations. Why? Because that's why the word came with the word. It's what God has said since the beginning that His Word would do. That His Word would come and would cause the nations to worship the one true God until His glory covers the earth like waters the sea. The Word of God is the weapon that we use to achieve that command of our King. Disciple the nations. Why does He command that? Because He knows if we're obedient... And we take his word to the nations and we teach them to obey all that he commands them, he will slay them that they might live. He's commanding us take the weapon and slay the nations. Take up my sword. Disciple. We can't disciple them, we can't make them disciples, but what can? The word. Remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, well, Stephen gets on the scene here. He just sort of shows up. And so they've got to tell us, you know, Acts has to tell us why they're about to start talking about Stephen because none of us know who he is. So Acts chapter 6 is, is laying out to us, you know, Stephen's a pretty big deal. He ends up being picked out uh, by the apostles for, for a particular task. Uh, you know, Acts 6 is letting us know Stephen's not a nobody, But why do the apostles need to appoint men like Stephen to take care of an an issue with these Hellenist or Greek widows? Why? Why? So actually, Stephen's, you know, they're picking out Stephen. Stephen's great. Well, why Why are they having to, to do this? Because, what do the apostles say? The apostles say it's because they can't be distracted from the word even to take care of widows. Think about that situation. Think about what's going on. Think about who's saying it. It's the apostles that say this. It's the disciples that say this. They like say, we can't be distracted from, from deaconing the word to deacon tables. Why? They had been given the word. These disciples, these apostles had been given the word, the word of the servant, the word that was supposed to do this great slaying work. And they were being taught by the spirit and caused to remember, remember. Jesus said, I'm going to cause you to remember everything I said. I'm going to teach you all things. That's what he told his disciples. I'm going to teach you all things and cause you to remember everything that I said. So when you're reading Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you're going, well, how did they remember all this stuff? Because Jesus said that's what the Spirit was going to do. He was going to make them remember all these things when you can't remember what you wore yesterday. So that's what they've been given. These disciples have been given this word by the word, and the Spirit is reminding them of everything that he said, teaching them everything they need to do, and they needed to be serving that word, not serving tables. Again, in, in the Greek, they said they need to be deaconing the word, not deaconing tables. Not because serving tables was below them, because they are apostles. Not because of that. But because they had been given a weapon and been commanded by Christ, the last thing he told them was to wield it. To wield this word. I will teach all of it to you. The Spirit will make sure you remember everything that I've said and you wield it against the nations. And so when the apostles are trying to do that and they're deaconing the word, they're serving that word that they've been given, they say, we don't have time to stop doing this, to put down the sword And start serving tables. And when they do, when they wield that weapon as they were directed to do in Acts 6, what happens? We often forget it because we start talking about all the other things that Acts 6 isn't about. And we start focusing on those instead of seeing what Acts 6 actually says. Because what does it say? When the, when the, because it's real, Acts is really about, really about that. So when the, when they start when the apostles who've been given the word start paying attention to the word and serving the word, deaconing the word, look at what happens. The task Jesus gave them starts to succeed. The disciplifying of the nation starts to happen. Jesus told them to go and disciple the nations in that great commission. Well, what happens at the end of that section in Acts chapter 6? What happens in verse 7? When they don't, when they don't serve tables, but instead minister the Word, when they deacon the Word, when they serve the Word, the Spirit is teaching and they've been commanded. This is, apostles, this is what you do. You go and you make disciples. Last task their king had given them, last command, last mission, they've got to do that. What happens? And the Word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests Became obedient to the faith. Disciples are made because the weapon of God's word is wielded. When God's word is wielded as a weapon, the nations cannot stand against it. Even, the nation, even Satan's own children are delivered from evil when you wield the weapon of God's word against his kingdom. The gates of hell cannot stop it. The simple truth is that there is no one that the Word of God does not cleave them in two. His people, not His people. Jew or Gentile. The Word of God is a weapon that cleaves you. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give The account. The Word of God is a powerful weapon. It's a powerful weapon whether you're the child of the king or you sit in the kingdom of darkness. It's a powerful weapon. The Word of God is a sharp sword, sharp enough to cut you to the heart and lay bare who you really are, to leave you naked and exposed, whether you are His child or not His child. The Word of God can show you who you really are. It cuts. For God's people, it will reveal that we are really redeemed, righteous sons of the living God. As God's word exposes our sin, cuts out the darkness, and we rejoice that it does that work. For the nations, it will reveal to them that they are dead. And be a light to them of hope and of salvation. But for everyone... The word of God is a powerful weapon to deliver us from evil. So what can we do with this? And I'll make this short. You know, comparatively speaking. Uh first use God's word as a weapon. I want you to start using God I want you to weaponize the word of God. I say this because uh we don't do that a lot. Uh, God's word is a weapon for yourself. So use God's word against any creep of the evil one in your life. So it, it it's also be willed against the kingdom of darkness outside your home as well. But when when you see the influx of sin and you feel temptation and the weight of that, use God's word to cut out. You failed in battle, go to the word of God. And let the word of God cut out from you any gangrenous inroads of sin. We've become, however, afraid to use God's word as a weapon. As Christians, it has become the task of us, it seems, to blunt God's word. Even to possibly take it off the shelf. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to mention the cutting aspects of it. We apologize for it, softening it with words like, well, that was a different culture and a different time. We've lost our confidence in Christ's weapon. The world has gotten us to believe that our great objective is to just spend our time defending God's word. Like that's the task. of Instead of the word of God being used to defend us and the word of God being used by us to attack the enemy. The world has convinced us we need to spend all our time just defending God's word from every attack from the evil one. the, The word does not need your defense. It doesn't need your apologies for what it talks about. It doesn't need you to be ashamed of its bold and serrated language. If the enemy can get you to think that your great task is simply to defend the Bible, then he knows you will never even begin to think about actually wielding the Bible. Because you'll be too embarrassed by it. But we must take up God's word as a weapon. We must use. We can't, we can't just let the 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 darkness spread, and we just think our job is to is just to defend the sword. Your job is to take up the sword to drive back against this present darkness. Take God's word and use it as one. And it's simple. Just take God's word and walk to your neighbor's house with it. And do so confidently because your neighbor is its purpose. You wield a weapon meant to slay those who sit in a world of darkness so that they might know the light. You look at your neighbor and you're like, "Oh, they're, they're lost or they're whatever." You go, like, "Well, what can happen? Why hasn't pray Take the weapon God has given you and wield it against them. Slay them with it. Instead of hiding it back and thinking that maybe you can convince them enough to finally sneak a Bible onto the table. And they'll go, "What is that a Bible that I see?" why yes it is thank you for asking you take the Bible you walk across the street with it and you kill the nations so that they might live treat the Bible like a weapon or at least that's what we're supposed to do instead sometimes we're just simply satisfied for the light that it gives to us Meant to be a light to the nations, and we're like, got it, got the light, thank you. Then we put it under our own little house bushel, storing it away, happy how bright our house is as our neighbors live in darkness. I mean, The sword worked on me, yes. But it's worked on you so that you might then wield it against those who were once your brothers and sisters. We're not called to cloister with the word of God. We're called to conquer with it. And we've become so disillusioned by the whispers of the enemy that it won't work. We've got, we've got Christians who aren't even confident that the, word, the the word of God will work in their own families, much less in people across the street. If you don't even think the word of God's gonna work in your own children's lives, of course you're not gonna think the word of God's gonna work in someone you don't even know. I mean, we're not even confident enough to wield the word of the sword of the word when we've got home field advantage, much less in enemy territory. We've got to re-weaponize the Word of God because a weapon is what it is. It is a sword. You cannot change it from that. It is we who have domesticated it. It is we who have neutered the Word of God. We have declawed it and defanged it. The very weapon that was meant to bring the kingdom of darkness to its end. Weaponize the Word of God. Use God's word as a weapon against yourself. Use God's word to reveal in your own life. God's word to reveal things that you didn't even know were there. It will, it will pierce to your very soul. Use it against yourself. Don't be someone that is just excited to use it out there and not use it on yourself. Best way to do that, again, read, read, read. For the battles you've lost, to reveal the battles you didn't even realize you've lost yet, read, read, read. And that will drive the darkness out of your heart. You want to grow more as a Christian? You maybe don't even want to grow. You just want to quit failing so much as a Christian? Read, 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 read. And the sword's going to do that. The sword's living and active. It'll do that. It'll show you. It'll lay bare who you are. It'll reveal the things you didn't even know were there. But you've got to take it up. You've got to use it. You're tired of how, the inroads that, that the, the kingdom of darkness still has in your life. You're tired of that old man. Well, cleave him asunder with the word. Drive him out. Excise him with the word of God. Gain confidence in the power of the sword by remembering how the sword has worked in your own life. And don't be convinced by the enemy that what we really need is other weapons. I mean, the enemy has done a great job getting the church to think that the Bible is just one weapon we need instead of the weapon we need. How are we going to convince, how are we going to show the light to the nations? Uh, well, of course the Bible, and, 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 but what else? And in the end, the Bible be, becomes the, the lesser weapon. Because the churches focus all of their efforts on all the other weapons that aren't weapons at all. And they start to just assume, though, of course we've got the Bible. There's not a church that you talk to that goes, oh, we don't use the Bible. Of course we use the Bible. They would even say, of course I think that's the most important weapon. And we respond to that, no, I think it's the only weapon. I know the most important weapon is the only weapon. The word of God is the only weapon that promises to drive out sin from God's people. It is the only weapon that promises to bring the nations to Christ. Don't assume that you're using the Bible as a weapon in your life or in your church and then focus all your other tools, focus all your time on all the other tools you can put at your disposal. This is the tool we must use. This is the weapon we must wield because this is the thing that works. It would be foolish to start even talking about anything else as if that might be effective to bring people to Christ. Well, what people really need, no. Especially when we say what they really need, and we never even picked up the sword and used it as a weapon. We might holster it. We might have it like a sword and a scabbard at our side, but we do not wield it against them. And again, to do this, you have to gain confidence in the power of the sword by remembering what it's done in your life. It is the sword of God's word that pierced your heart. It is the word of Christ that brought you death and then life with it. It is the word of Christ that is still the font for your life and growth. The more you meditate and see the power of Christ at work in you through the word, the more you will wield that weapon of the word freely and powerfully, both in your own life and in the life of those around you who are still in evil you will know that there's only one thing that slays the evil that they might live. Only one tool given to us to sever them from the kingdom of darkness, the word of Christ. So Christian, cherish that word and wield that word and watch the kingdom of darkness quake for the sound of horses' hooves and the onsla- onslaught of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. I want you to take a moment. And our first prayer I want us to have is to ask God to use his word on us. Now that, before you pray that, and before you ask that, be careful. Because you're either going to pray that and not mean it, which would be a, a grievous sin or you're going to ask that, and it might really hurt. But I want you to mean it, and I want you to ask God, wield the sword of your word against me where I need it. Excise any evil from me. Show me any wicked way, and cut it from me with your word. What has He shown you? What might He show you? Will you leave the gangrene there? Will you leave the rot? Or will you throw yourself upon that sword? That the infection might die there at the tip of the blade of Christ. Next, I want you to pray. I want you to ask that you would confidently wield God's word as a weapon against the enemy. That you would think about the people that you know, the people that you love, the people that you are simply around, that God has chosen to put you there of all places. Instead of thinking of all the places that you're not and the people that aren't, I want you to think about where God has put you and where you are and think how am I wielding God's word like a weapon there? Have I had interactions with them? Have I, have I become defeatist and thinking that his weapon won't work? Have I blunted it myself by just assuming and never even taking it across the street? Never even taking it to my neighbor? Not afraid to bring it to the dinner table? Afraid to wield it confidently because of how they might respond? So I started to turn to all these other things or I'm just trying to be super nice or whatever. But you've left behind the very thing that'll bring them life. What are you gonna do? Send them to hell with a smile on their face because they had a nice meal? Never bringing out the weapon? Never wielding it against them? For their sake? That they might live? Have you de-weaponized the word of God? Has it become just a decoration for your home? Just something you put on doilies and memorize or whatever? Why would you memorize it? Why do soldiers go through practice skills with their weapons so that they might use them? Why are you memorizing God's word? Why are you learning your catechisms? Why are you reading? So that you might take it up. Ask God to help you weaponize the word in your life. To give you confidence with the word that you'd wield it like he told you to do. Unless you want to say, "Oh no, he, just commanded his, his, he just commanded the apostles to disciple the nations. Do you think the Great Commission is real? Then the Great Commission happens when we become deacons of the word. When we serve it and use it. When we watch the nations come to Christ. That's not going to happen if we don't wield it. We can't be surprised it doesn't happen if we don't wield it. Because that's what he uses to bring the dead to life. Father, we come to you this morning. And Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the way you wield it against us. And so, Father, I pray that we would run to your word and take that word to cleave inside of us. Any way we're thought, anything that we see, Father, how are we going to get rid of it? How are we going to stop the sin that seems to so easily entangle us and ensnare us? We must lop that vine with the word when the thorns of this world re-grab us on our way, we must hack at them with the sword of your word. So teach us, Father, to get to hacking in our own lives, to hew us, strike us, Father, that you might bind us up, slay us, that you might raise us. And Father, help us to use, to use to not be embarrassed or afraid of your word, but to, but to use it, To take it up and use it offensively, intentionally. To wield it against the kingdom of darkness. And to not be satisfied with with any vestige of darkness in any area around us. But to fight and fight and fight. Until at the end of our lives we can say, I have fought the good fight. Help us to wield and wield and wield. To swing and swing and swing confidently, knowing that when we do, your kingdom will advance. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence it gives us because how you've already used this word in our own lives. Help us to cherish it. Help us to wield it. And help us to, in faith, watch you work through it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.